not unusual for there to be five to ten calls per week from families that had just been seen by mm. one of us at UT taking care of one of their children who has ADHD and having sent the electronic prescription for a controlled substance only to find out that they didn't have the prescription or mm. only had so many. And then having to help them find a pharmacy that might have it. Sometimes no easy task. I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Joining me here in the podcast studio today is John Carlo Ferruzzi, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He did his undergraduate at Stanford University in human biology and attended medical school at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Today, we are talking about a dire drug shortage that you probably know about. We're talking about the ADHD drug shortage. Dr. Ferruzzi, thank you so much for joining me here in the podcast studio and for being on Pediatrics Now. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You played soccer at Stanford. I did, and my knees are living proof of that. (laughs) Still feeling it? Still feeling it, yes. And now you've been a child psychiatrist for 30 years? Right, including the latter part of my fellowship training, which I started in San Diego but then relocated to San Antonio in 1995, was with a group for two years before hanging my own shingle as a solo practitioner and have been doing that since up until almost uh, four years now being with UT Health with some great wonderful colleagues that I look forward to working with every day. I know you're making a big difference and it's an honor to be able to talk to you today. It seems like there's always, as we know, a drug shortage of some type. A recent New York Times headline says the ADHD drug shortage is causing real pain. How much pain is this causing? What can we do about it? And is this unique? I'll start at the end and work backwards. Not necessarily unique, but some of the other medications in which there are shortages may actually have to do with other reasons, manufacturing decisions, of medications based upon margins of profit. And that includes, sadly, equally sadly, if not more so, cancer treatments in Mm -hmm. which there have been modifications necessary in certain protocols because of the availability or lack thereof. But with respect to ADHD medications, Shortly after the pandemic started, there were obviously supply chain issues, which we all felt in a variety of other things, not just medication. But even as those seemed to get sorted out, there seemed to be a lingering issue and problem end of 2022 into 2023. And it didn't help that there seemed to be 
some finger pointing between certain agencies suggesting that manufacturers didn't take advantage of allotments and quota that they had been authorized to make. So in fall of 2023, the FDA and DEA came out with a joint statement explaining that one, there was recognition that there was a shortage and some steps on how they were going to proceed to address it. Mm -hmm. And understandably, these pharmacies would not necessarily know when they would be getting their stock back in, Mm -hmm. which we try to use somewhat as a teaching tool with the fellows and residents that we oversee, we supervise, because... The stimulants are one of the types of treatment approved by the FDA as medication management for individuals with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, probably used 70 to 75% of the time, oftentimes because they work quickly. You can see what it's going to be like in a short period of time and the side effect profile, generally manageable if someone's starting conservatively with the dosage. But we try to use it as an exercise, a teaching exercise, to be thinking about alternatives, either a different stimulant within that same family, meaning there's two main families of stimulants. There's methylphenidate, which is Ritalin, and there are a number of different immediate release and extended release formulations of methylphenidate or Ritalin. And then the other family being the amphetamine salt, which also has several different immediate release and extended release options. And generally speaking, methylphenidate to amphetamine, that amphetamine salt dosages are twice as potent milligram for milligram as methylphenidate, Mm -hmm. but not always exactly. For example, there's a single isomer form of methylphenidate called dexmethylphenidate. The uh, trade name is Focalin, and Focalin has both a generic and branded. Also immediate release and time release, and dexmethylphenidate is milligram for milligram equipotent to the amphetamine salts, whereas racemic methylphenidate, whether it be in metadate, methylphenidate, methylene, concerta, are half as potent as the focalin. One of the first questions to be asked with respect to a medication not being available, try to determine if they know for certain, they, the pharmacy, knows the medicine's going to be in. If not, what do they have in stock that might be a suitable alternative that one would have to make an adjustment for potency issues and assuming that there haven't been any tolerability problems with that type of medicine before, either by that individual or one of their first-degree family members. And that is within the stimulant class of medications, and there have been a few times when even the suitable alternatives 
are not available either or to try to find it within a reasonable time, a week, week and a half, was coming short. So then the decision's been made to make a change in the medicine to a, a non-stimulant, and there are several. The partial alpha agonists, guanfacine and clonidine, originally developed as blood pressure medicines, but not necessarily the greatest of blood pressure medicines, have been shown to have effect in reducing some of the core features of ADHD, probably hyperactivity, impulsivity, a little more so than the inattention. And then there are other non-stimulants that are not blood pressure medications, atomoxetine, which the trade name was Stratera, which may be more noradrenergic, was initially developed by Lilly Pharmaceuticals with the idea of distributing it as a treatment for depression, but at that time, SSRIs were just becoming new to the market, and Lilly had, Lilly Pharmaceuticals had fluoxetine, one of the revolutionary medications for depression because of how well it was tolerated, the low lethality and overdose compared to the predecessor antidepressant du jour, which used to be tricyclic antidepressants. But atomoxetine was looked at for that purpose and then not released, was on a shelf until the 90s when um, 10 double-blind placebo control trials were done, uh, six in kids, four in adults that showed, demonstrated efficacy. And then uh, another relatively new non-stimulant, veloxazine, um, marketed under the name of Calbri, which also a non-stimulant that provides an alternative either for situations like this when there's a shortage or a paucity of medications locally, or sometimes even for kids who have problems tolerating side effects of stimulants because of either it diminishes their appetite, affects their sleep, or sometimes causes substantial emotional hypersensitivity that affects their interaction with their peer. Do you suggest asking them to keep looking at some different pharmacies first, or do you go straight to the, okay, you're about to run out of the medication, depending on how much you have left, this is what I suggest, I'm going to prescribe something different? It's, I want to say, not directly, correlated but strongly related to how great that medicine at that dose had been working for that client. When the families are extolling the virtues of that particular medicine, that dose, that is the sweet spot, then yes, more effort should be made to try to locate it first. If it is a little bit better than equivocal, their endorsement of how well the symptoms of ADHD were being targeted by the medication, then maybe not an exhaustive effort to find something, that medicine nearby uh, at maybe a, a different pharmacy, but I would then start entertaining the uh, possibility of finding an alternative. Texas has been declared a psychiatry desert. So many states are, so such few resources and, and few experts such as you. 
what should pediatric practitioners do? I mean, I know we have a, a the program here in Texas, CPAN, where they can call and talk to a psychiatrist. Or right. Well, CPAN, which stands for the Child Psychiatry Access Network, is uh, one part of a movement developed through the consortium, Mental Health Consortium, the other being TCHAT, which has to do with school consultations. And And they can, yeah, through the schools, your child could have six visits. It's free, and they talk to a University of Texas Health Science Center pediatric psychiatrist, right? We have uh, professionals, therapists, counselors, physicians, depending upon what the scope of the issue and problem is, uh, generated um, by the family, mediated through the school, through TCHAT and CPAN, which provides real-time consultation for that primary care practitioner, having someone in their office, rather than the older model, which would be, who do I know in the community? Who can I call? How quickly can they get them in? But calling the CPAN hotline, and there are several hubs all over Texas that route calls to the appropriate CPAN team. And it's amazing, within 10 minutes, you can be on the phone with a pediatric psychiatrist, right? Right, absolutely. And at that time, not simply related to questions of treating ADHD, but things uh, regarding mental health. Anything, right? Anything. So you could ask, this patient is taking this much of this medication, of ADHD medication, they can't find it, what do you... Right, what, what would be a next step? Do most states in the United States have a program like this, or what do our listeners in other states do, should they do, Well, and worldwide? Ma- Massachusetts was... I believe the first to launch and uh, many of the template ideas we have come from that, but several states do, several states have yet, but I think that things are moving in that direction. CPAN is, is it, it's a state legislated program, state funded. It's been a game changer. It has. I've been... Prior to my onboarding with UT, I had been providing telehealth services for a nonprofit that had a very similar mission to provide care where subspecialists may not go in rural areas. Wow. And when I had the opportunity to come on board to be part of this program and to help mentor and teach the next generation of physicians with these wonderful resources I was I was ecstatic and still am but it's fantastic how we have moved there was a time which probably carbon dates me (laughs) that I wondered wow I never thought we would go past the pen and paper chart with the manila folder and the lockbox, and then we moved to electronic medical records, and then we moved to electronic control prescriptions, and then we have these real-time services available, not just to uh, rural areas, but uh, congested communities that are having difficulty 
having their clients get in to see a mental health professional. So it's wonderful to be a part of. You see patients through UT Health San Antonio, University Hospital, and also Clarity is where you work out of for our listeners here. Most of the child and adolescent psychiatrists that are part of the UT psychiatry faculty division of child and adolescent will office out of the clarity outpatient building but we also have faculty that uh, work remotely at places like center for Healthcare services the juvenile detention center crier roy moss um, home so there's a community experience as part of uh, our presence uh, as well as here locally by the med center. Is there anything we can safely say on this podcast though for advice for our practitioner listeners like what is the first line medication you would suggest as a substitute? It depends on what the individual is taking before. So for example if you have someone who was taking Concerta, which is an extended-release racemic methylphenidate, then we try to stay within that family of methylphenidate medications, assuming that it's been effective, assuming that it's been well-tolerated, and then adjusting to the appropriate milligram. If... So... If it's Concerta, other alternatives like Focalin, Metadate, Methylin, sometimes we have to, When again, in that fall of 2023, one of the few things that we could find would be methylphenidate tablets, which was you know back where we first started before manufacturers started to develop these time-release formulations. If they're child was taking an amphetamine salt, let's say Adderall, was it immediate release? Is there a time release available that would be appropriate? Uh, Vyvanse is also an amphetamine salt, time release medication. So the go-to depends on whether they're currently taking a methylphenidate or an amphetamine salt and then making a decision based on the potency. Is there hope on the horizon, or what's, when is this going to end? Relief might be coming second or third quarter of this year. With the manufacturers involved being strongly encouraged by um, FDA, DEA, regarding utilizing their full allotment of medication rather than what happened, which someone else's statistic, not mine, where there be a billion doses of medication that were neither manufactured or shipped. That happened? That is reportedly what happened. Wow. And it's also important to keep in mind that this comes on the heels of a setback that happened collectively to our kids, which... The pandemic... Kids being affected in a way where they their ability to socialize, mature, develop by the types of things or because of the types of things that we had previously taken for granted had not been there. 
and then a lot of things which had taken its place in terms of technology, devices, overstimulation of things of high intensity, there, there had been, pause? Sure. C-pan. Sure. Hello? Hi. So we paused the recording and are starting again now after Dr. Ferruzzi took a call from CPAN. So it, it shows how well it works. The community pediatrician was able to get through and talk to you. Yeah, it seemed as if it was timely and the uh, information was going to be immediately helpful. Could it be a real danger to a child if they can't have this medication? Certainly, impulse regulation can include things if a kid is not thinking before they act. Not just if it's in combination with another kind of mental health condition, like a mood disorder, but oftentimes mental health conditions will occur in combination with something else. And they could develop another condition if, if they go too long without the medication? If a kid is not receiving the, the treatment to target the core symptoms of that condition, in this case, ADHD, one can understand and imagine how a child who understands that they are not performing what they're capable of, or the only feedback that they're getting are reminders or it being pointed out where they've fallen short, when it's also been established that they're capable of, of doing it, but because the that prefrontal, prefrontal cortex is not mature enough yet to override um, or to filter out the many other distractions and simulations occurring, then over time that can lead to a sense of helplessness, uh, a sense of what's the point, becoming distraught, maybe even developing a depression, mm. and certainly affecting their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. That's really tough. Are we, but we're pretty dependent, it sounds like, on the pharmaceutical companies right now? Pharmaceutical companies, manufacturers, the first of all, the manufacturers of medications. And uh, I think it's also worthwhile to maybe look at is the pace of new development for things keeping up? Or have we started to plateau as if, well, we have enough things in the arsenal, which when there's a shortage, no, we do not have enough things in the arsenal. When does it become incumbent upon um, manufacturers to then say, well, we can then look to develop something else within the framework of the uh, existing medications that exist that make sense? Of course, it would have to go through the vetting process by the FDA, but there haven't been a lot of newer medications that have come out of recent. 
why is that expensive to develop and test? I'm sure those all play a role. Expense, potential liability. If um, the uh, the results of testing are not clinically superior to what is available in the market, then that individual may have or that, that company may have encumbered a great expense for something that is not going to yield profits. Do you think ADHD medications by and large are overprescribed? ADHD is a, it's a clinical diagnosis based upon whether criteria are met uh, depending upon the age. And in we, we say when a child before the age of seven, seven to nine years of age in two different settings, usually home and school, for six months or longer, if the majority of time, if they are displaying six or more, six or more of a possible nine features of hyperactivity or inattentiveness, and or six or more of a possible nine features of uh, hyperactivity and impulsivity, enough to cause some degree of impairment or impairing the quality of life. And it's not better accounted for by another explanation or condition, then it would it's appropriate to apply the diagnosis of ADHD. As far as has the diagnosis of ADHD gone up? It's difficult to say when you take into consideration that some positive things have happened in the last decade, decade and a half, and there's still certainly room for improvement, but there have been large strides of improvement to reduce the stigma associated with mental health diagnoses. So I think that as that is becoming less of a stigma and people are more comfortable about seeking out something that legitimately exists, then the numbers are going to reflect that. What we talked about earlier in terms of the invaluable resources that programs like CPAN and TCHAT moving in this direction that allow for the telehealth consultations, that has also removed a barrier that has allowed for evaluation and diagnoses. Now, on the flip side, I've heard many people opine, and I think that there's some merit when we have become a more and more plugged in society that few things are going to be able to compete for that attention of those overriding high stimulus things. Social media, the technological devices. It seems like video there's games. video games. There was, um, I think it was a couple decades ago, and it may have been Case Western, but the gist of it was looking, and this was before a lot of the platforms of TikTok and um, Instagram and 
Facebook and all these things became just so ubiquitous. But some researchers looked at kids that were allowed to play a video game. And I would submit that this was before the average mean time of a kid being on some technological device was much less than the standard is now, whatever that number may be. But they looked at those kids that were allowed to perform a fun game versus doing age-appropriate math questions. So something that was within their wheelhouse. And they were in a room in which there were no clocks. They had no ability to determine how much time had elapsed. So they let the kids go and do... um, the, the video game du jour and then later another group of kids were doing the math problems and when they would be asked so how much time do you think that you were playing this game routinely there would be an under endorsement 15-20 minutes when it was closer to 45 or 60 mm. and if they were doing the math problems they would say 45 to 60 minutes when it may only be 10 to 15. So that's that sense, that perception. So if we're having that happen now with kids who may not have otherwise been thought to have a condition of limited attention or heightened distractibility, and maybe a decade ago or two decades ago would have never appeared on the radar, is it safe to say... um, do we have ranks a generation of kids that are going to be more susceptible environmentally to what is, one, a known genetic condition, but can have the interplay of environmental factors that affect it? And I think that's a valid question. I mean, there was something reported, uh, I think a year and a half ago, about a fourfold increase in tick-like behaviors in kids. Uh, yeah, I have a colleague who, her high school son, they don't know why, but all of a sudden now he has a tick, and mm-hmm. they haven't been able to figure it out why. So um, there are those types of considerations that need to be looked at further. The tick could be ADHD-related, caused by environmental factors or for whatever the cause Right, environmental factor associated with exposure to overstimulation in devices, wavelengths of light, that type of thing. So the social media or the video games could be causing the ADHD. That's one of the considerations. That's one of the schools of thought, yeah. And even, so my 15-year-old son, I try to limit the video game. He loves video games, of course, right? And playing Fortnite, which is very common. Yeah. I'm looking at it, and it's, I mean, with a machine gun walking through looking who you're going to shoot next. Why is that fun? And he says, all kids play it, Mom. It's I'm the only one who has, who can't play it very much. Like, how, I mean, this can't be good for us, right? Do you, do you have any advice there? Yeah, that's that's a, the literal and figurative loaded, loaded gun, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, is the, uh, with the, with the rise in, in mass violence. Yes. What things could be environmentally influencing that? Because it it desensitizes our brains, right? 
Well, on, on one level, it's inarguable that if someone is exposed to something, that same something, over and over, they do become desensitized to it. doesn't matter whether there are pastoral images in the background or if it's violent first-person shooter games. There is going to be a desensitization. Now, I'm not trying to purport that there are not kids out there that understand there is no blurring of the distinction of healthy boundaries and unhealthy boundaries and can compartmentalize that escapism regardless of what their parents may feel it being appropriate or not appropriate and go about their lives, do well at school, have healthy relationships with family and friends and sports, music, church, all those things. Um, but there's also a subset of individuals who are more susceptible to those lines being blurred. And as a result of that distinction not being made, are at greater risk for mental health problems. And unfortunately, some of the outcomes that have occurred. Do you have any advice for pediatric practitioners when they're talking to their patients about how much is too much for social media or and or video games? I think that's like trying to recommend a certain temperature in someone's home, you know, uh, based on their energy bill and consumption. I think we all need to be conscientious of that. Uh, but also one person's comfort may be at a slightly different degree. But I think that moderation and more importantly, incorporation of other activities that are, that are healthy, that are not plugged in, that involve uh, kinetic activity, that involve a type of socialization that is real and not virtual. I'm not trying to say that there's inherently something wrong with virtual interaction, no, but there needs to be more of a balance, and it can't just be that. So that's the beauty of sports or an in-person music lesson, band. Right, um, just getting, getting together and socializing. Dr. Fruzzi, is there anything else before we wrap up Do you want that you would like to say to the pediatric practitioner about this ADHD shortage? Hang in there. <laughs> Hang in there. I want to be optimistic and think that it's going to be less of an issue in the months, in the uh, ensuing months. But certainly if there's any questions about alternatives and medication, um, reach us through CPAN. Um, I know that there are not the same droves of pharmaceutical reps anymore that come in that would often have the shiny, glossy placard that talked about the, the dose equivalent. But not to panic. It's not going to be like this indefinitely. There are alternatives. Uh, there's colleagues here that are willing to, uh, to be of service to you. And it is important that, 
that the kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD stay on the regimen because the types of things that you were alluding to in terms of the effects that it has on children to be without can be both related to performance and thereby related to self-esteem. Kids who have ADHD that is disruptive enough to affect either their academics, their classroom performance, their socialization, the quality time at home with family. I've talked to countless parents even prior to this medication shortage and one of the questions upon screening and follow-up would be about how frequently they're taking their medication. One of the things that we also look at to ascertain as kids get older and mature, some of whom naturally find ways to compensate for the core deficits related to their ADHD. For example, even the most hyperactive of children as they get through puberty, the hyperactivity rarely ever stays, but one of the equivalents that can continue might be impulsivity, the blurting out, the leaping before they look type thing. So in questioning families upon, uh, at office visits, asking them, so is there still a difference when your son, daughter takes or doesn't take their medication and then asking them the same question and then also looking for certain objective data in terms of progress reports from school, notes from teachers, report cards. A lot of times we'll provide clues and information as to how one should proceed. But kids with ADHD that is disruptive enough in any of those environments are at risk of not just having untreated ADHD, but perhaps the development and progression of other things like a mood disorder or anxiety. And a big headline just the other day showed that ADHD is on the rise in adults. Have you heard that? Yes, and I think that the types of things that we talked about earlier also equally apply. It certainly would be before when I was in private practice that I would have families bring their child and a lot of the screening process and the questions, then they would have the epiphany, oh, well, yeah, they don't come to think of it. Thinking back when I was a kid, a lot of those things applied to me, but either they compensated well enough for it or again like we talked about there was more of a stigma back then so less likely to have it evaluated and and addressed and whereas now fortunately there's less of that hurdle to overcome. John Carlo here on Pediatrics Now we love quotes I love quotes do you have a so you're a married father of four and With your kids, they must be, I mean, 30 years of experience as a child psychiatrist. Do you, um, how's how's that also being a dad? Oh, I'm, it's brought to my attention where I fall short very (laughs) often. 
the other day, my eight-year-old, after I had received a call from the school nurse at 2.30, mind you, school lets out at 3, and the elementary school is five minutes away, 10 minutes away. And the school nurse called to tell me that uh, our third grader, Gemma, feisty redhead, said that her uh, her stomach was upset, but she wasn't running a fever. And I said, okay, well, thank you for letting us know. Well, we'll, we'll be at home to greet her like we usually are. Bus drops her off right in front of our house. She comes in, sees me on the chair, uh, on the phone, work-related. As she shuts the door, she exclaims, what kind of doctor are you? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, despite the experience, that doesn't necessarily convey, uh, in terms of like anyone as a parent, you, uh, you, you have your foibles, you make, you make your mistakes, uh, you show your kids that you love them. Um, and also, you know, another thing is that, that parenthood is not a popularity contest that oftentimes the, uh, the right thing and the easy thing are not the same thing. And so true. They have to. They have to experience it, um, but most of the time, as they get older, they realize that those shepherding hands and intentions were done out of love and to help them uh, during their growth. One thing that I read recently that I think has great applicability and I'm paraphrasing here but it goes accept people for who they are but don't feel bad about keeping them in their place because you are the CEO of your life and you should hire fire and promote accordingly what inspires you to become a pediatric psychiatrist? Your, your job has to be tough in a lot of ways. I would You see so many problems. Well, my, my journey was not the direct route of a kid that wanted to be a doctor. It went from kid thinking about design and architecture to then being inspired by someone who was a pediatrician and helping the lives of young people in the Palo Alto area. And then once I was in medical school, the natural thought was you played sports all your life. You're going to become an orthopedic surgeon until I did an honest inventory and realized that I could not get impassioned over a table with carpentry tools. And I have the ultimate respect of the people that do it. And, uh, gosh, I've relied on them, um, uh, six decades and probably good Lord willing another one or two. And, and so in medical school, I was thinking, well, I, I found out something that I don't want to do that I thought that I did. So now what do I do? And I had just coincidentally in the summers towards the end of high school and the summers in between freshman sophomore and even junior year of college I had always worked as a camp counselor for soccer camps overnight 
and um, had been around kids and had helped both coach and mentor and um, it seemed like a natural extension working with kids and their their self-esteem, their empowerment, coupled with the fact that child psychiatry, even today, is still a field that is so in need that you could literally blindfold yourself, throw a dart at a map of the United States, and wherever it lands, you could find a job there. And it was even much more the case when I was coming out of uh, medical school. So it seemed like the perfect fit, and so far I've not been disappointed. Sometimes tired, but not disappointed. Well, Dr. Fruzzi, it's been a wonderful experience talking to you today. Thank you so much. John Carlo Ferruzzi, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Thank you for being here on Pediatrics Now. Thank you, Holly. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Holly Wayment, and you're listening to Pediatrics Now. We've developed a new podcast for your patients. You know all the things you probably don't have time to talk about in the exam room, such as vaccine hesitancy, or really any topic that we cover here on Pediatrics Now for the Busy Practitioner. We're offering that in short bites, 10 minutes or less, for the busy parent. That's Pediatrics Now for parents. I'll put the website in the text for this podcast, and you can also likely find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's new Pediatrics Now for parents. Thanks for listening.